0: If you have your Bibles turn to the book of Zechariah. One of these days we're going to get through this book. We've missed some weeks and we're going to miss a few more here in a few weeks. So, uh, but we'll get through it, and then Malachi, and then we'll be uh, in the uh, New Testament for a while. So, looking forward to that. But uh, really, as you read through Zechariah, and you study Zechariah, it's almost like reading the New Testament. Uh, it parallels so closely to what we're studying in Revelation, and, and uh, we certainly see the gospel here, and uh, that's what this book is all about. It's uh, here were these people that had come back from captivity, and, and, they, and they saw Jerusalem, and they saw their nation in, in ruins, and, and they, they needed hope and so God gives them this prophet Zechariah. He gave them Haggai. He gave them Haggai to kind of stimulate them. He, gives them Zechariah to, 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 he gave them Haggai to stimulate them to do the work that they needed to do and almost convict them that they needed to get busy with their work. And then he gives them Zechariah to show them what a great hope they have for, for their future and what a great hope all the people of this world have for their future in Jesus Christ. And so uh, we want to pick up in chapter number 9 tonight. And uh, as we come to chapter number nine and through the rest of uh, Zechariah we're going to get the meat of Zechariah's prophecy and we're going to get a series of prophecies about the first and second coming of Jesus Christ some really exciting stuff I uh, I, I remember years ago when we were living in Las Vegas and and uh, there was a guy who lived next door to us he was a Jew and I remember sharing with him the gospel on several occasions and and I just couldn't seem to get through with him. And then I brought him to this prophecy here that we're going to be looking at tonight about the, uh, the Palm Sunday. I mean, right here in Zechariah, some 400 years before Jesus rode into uh, Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And it's just an amazing prophecy. And so uh, we're going to see a lot of that as we go through uh, the, rest of this, uh, uh, the rest of this chapter or the rest of this book. Uh, back to that guy, I mean, he, he really showed an interest after that. We moved away shortly after that. I don't know if he got saved or not, but uh, hopefully he did. And and uh, he certainly was taken back and told me he was going to start looking into this Jesus, the Messiah. So so maybe he got saved. Maybe I'll see him in heaven and that'll be great. All right. Uh, the first eight verses that we are going to look at tonight, it, it's kind of a, it, they don't seem to fit. Uh, in this chapter they don't seem to fit in this part of the book but they do when you study a little bit about the intertestamental period because what these first eight verses are about is this man Alex, and he's not even named in here but it's, it's, uh, it's like Daniel chapter 8 we, hear, we read about Alexander the Great and in uh, Zechariah chapter 9 we read about Alexander the Great And the reason he's so important to the setting of these chapters is that he's the one who brought the Greek Hellenistic culture into the Middle East. Actually, he brought it into the entire world. And it's from that Greek Hellenistic culture that we get Koine Greek. And guess what the first Bible was written in? The first New Testament, rather, was written in. It was written in Koine Greek. And so it was Koine Greek. That allowed the Jews to share the gospel with the Gentiles, and then other the Gentiles throughout the world to share the gospel with one another. Uh, they 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 could most most of the people in that in, in, entire uh, area spoke Greek or could read Greek, and so it, this was God setting this all up, and and uh, he's certainly uh, doing you know disciplining some of these nations in the process. But I think his main purpose, and the reason we see this here, is to, that, that this through Alexander, this uh, Greek culture was brought into being and are spread throughout the world. It wasn't brought into being through him, but it was spread throughout the world by him. All right, now, uh, the first attack that Alexander made when he came into the Middle East, when he came into Palestine, was against, uh, actually when he came into the Middle East, was against Syria. And that's what we read about as we come to verse number 1. It says the burden of the word of the Lord against the land of Hadrach or the land of Syria and Damascus, its resting place. uh, For the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. They're watching what's happening right here. The Lord's about to move. And all the world is watching as this man, Alexander, musters these army. He musters his army, and they've seen him attacking uh, to the north of them, and so they know he had, he's coming down into Palestine. And so all the the eyes of the Middle East, of the men of the Middle East, and and the eyes of all the tribes of Israel, are on this guy Alexander. Now he's a really it, it, it's a good read to go back and in find you some. Some history, historic material, and read about Alexander the Great because he was a very uh, interesting military tactician. Because he he didn't amass a large army of of uh, you know a million men or five hundred thousand men or 100, even a hundred thousand men. He had an army of only fifty thousand men, but they were all on horseback or most of them were on horseback, and he 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 marched through. Uh, the world, conquering the world using the same uh, uh, tactic that Sheridan used when he marched through the South during the Civil War. Actually, I don't think he got it from Sheridan. Obviously, he didn't. Sheridan got it from him. But his tactic was to scorch and burn every place he went. So he he would slaughter the armies that he would defeat and then he would burn down their cities so they couldn't muster another army and uh, uh, fi- uh, have the goods or the material or, or uh, find the goods and materials in order to attack his rear. And so everywhere he went, he was just burning these cities down. And so uh, that's why the eyes of the whole world were on him. And the first place that he comes when he comes into the Middle East is into Syria and he attacks Syria and and uh, uh, he destroys Syria. Then in verse number two, he destroys Damascus. He burns Damascus to the ground. And after attacking Damascus, uh, he heads to Tyre and Sidon. It says also against Hamath, which borders on it, and against Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. For Tyre thought they were never going to be defeated. They, had, they, built, they built herself a tower, They heaped up silver like the dust and gold like the mire of the streets. Behold, the the Lord will cast her out. He will destroy her power in the sea and she will be devoured by fire. So here was Tyre and all of this takes place in the early 4th century B.C. So it's not too long after Zechariah makes this prophecy. But here was Tyre and they... All the world considered them an impenetrable city. There was no way you were going to attack a Tyre because uh, Tyre because Tyre set it just a little bit off the coast. and so you had to have boats a navy in order to attack them. So they were watching Alexandria march through the land and they you know they figured they were safe. Well what he did, he took the rubble from some of the cities on the shore where he was attacking and he built a causeway out to Tyre and they didn't have much of an army because they they had never, they had a navy, but their navy didn't do them any good, and so he built this, this uh, causeway out to the city, and once he uh, built the causeway, he sent his army in, and they destroyed the city, just as uh, Zechariah prophesied here, just as several of the other prophets prophesied, by the way, about the city of Tyre. And then the next city that he that fell was the city of Ascalon, uh, in that in the land of the Philistines. And listen to what happens in verse number 5. He says, Ashkelon shall see it in fear. Gaza also shall be very sorrowful. That's interesting. All of these places still are named the same thing today. And Ekron, for he dried up her expectation. The king shall perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon shall not be inhabited. And to this very day, there's a park that sits there with the ruins of uh, Ashkelon. Still to this day, it's never been inhabited since. And a mixed race shall settle in Ashdod. And that's exactly the way Ashdod is today. It's a mix of Arabians and Jews that live in Ashdod. And I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. And so this marks the destruction of the Philistines. And, and after Alexander came and defeated the Philistines uh, in the early 4th century B.C., they never emerged again as a nation. So this was the end of the Philistines. Some people say that the Palestinians there today are Philistines, but they're not really. Most of them are from Jordan and other areas. Uh, they're, they're a mixed race of different people. Uh, maybe there are some some of them that could trace back their roots to the Philistines, but uh, if that was even possible. But but it's it's not full of Philistines like some people say it is. It's it's uh, the Palestinians are really a A mixed race all right then in verse number seven it says I shall take away the blood from his mouth now there he's talking about the idolatries he's talking about the when when the pagans ate their meats that they sacrificed to their idols they ate the blood that was part of the the sacrifice was to eat the drink the blood uh, of the of the uh, animal that they ate and remember God was very specific uh, or gave specific orders to the Israelites that you were not to drink the blood. And that, uh, we know the, probably the main reason for that is that you know, it uh, uh, blasphemes the blood of Jesus Christ. But it also would uh, emulate what the pagans were doing when they drank the blood. He says, and the abominations from between his teeth. He's talking about the meat of the, uh, uh, the meat that was sacrificed to their pagan gods. But he who remains, even he shall be for our God. One day, the people who remain will be like the people in Judah. They'll be like the people in Jerusalem. So he says, he shall even be for our God, for Jehovah God, and shall be like a leader in Judah. And Ekron, in Ekron, the people in Ekron will be like a Jebusite. A Jebusite, remember David defeated the Jebusites and conquer jerusalem and so the jebusites would represent people who inhabit jerusalem so they will be like the jews their god will be one day the day is coming when they will be like the jews the whole world will worship the same god we will worship jehovah god all right then in verse number eight it says i will camp the lord's speaking here i will camp around my house now he's speaking here's alexander the great coming into the palestine and he's doing the scorch-and-burn tactic of of, destroying these cities as he goes through the land. And God's saying at this point, when that happens, I'm going to protect Jerusalem, and I'm going to protect the Israelites, and I'm going to protect the temple. He says, I will come around my house and protect it because of the army, because of him. He's speaking of Alexander the Great there. Who passes by and him who returns. So he's going to come down, he's going to go all the way down to Egypt, but he's not going to destroy Jerusalem. He's going to, and then he's going to go down, he's going to conquer Egypt, and then he's going to return back to Greece. And it's on his way back that Alexander the Great dies. And uh, then you have the Solution Empire where uh, the empire is split among three generals. We won't get into all of that, but that. Greek culture is established there in that land because of this work of Alexander. He says, because of him who passes by, him who returns, no more shall an oppressor pass through them, for now I have seen with my eyes. God says, I see him coming, and uh, I'm going to stop him from uh, destroying Jerusalem. That's really interesting. Alexander didn't spare any city. didn't spare any of the lands or the country nations that he conquered he went through and destroyed their major cities he killed off their armies he 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 uh he set up a government there and they were they were ready to rule that land but he came interestingly enough he came through jerusalem he came through judah and he didn't do his scorched earth policy actually there's there's several traditions about what happened one of the traditions says that that Alexander, we talked about this when we were in the book of Daniel, that Alexander came marching in to Judah, and when he came into Judah, the high priest went out and met him, and he showed him a scroll of the prophecy of Daniel, chapter 8, and there is Alexander the Great, uh, his 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 uh, military expeditions are prophesied there, and he showed him that, and he was so impressed by that, that he spared Jerusalem and he spared Judah. That's one take on what happened another take comes from Josephus Josephus says that when the they saw Alexander coming they realized that no military had stood up to him they were not going to stand up to him and so they sent the Levites out singing praises kind of like the story if you read Jehoshaphat did the same thing when the armies came against him I forget which army but one of the armies came against him and he sent out the Levite choirs and they began to sing praises to God and and uh they 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 were destroyed by God. But they sent out these Levite priests, and they sent out their high priest, and they're singing these songs. And Joseph said that he, he was so impressed by what he saw, by their godly manner, and by uh, uh, their their uh, all their beautiful uh, garments that they wore. He was so impressed by all that that he spared Judah and spared Jerusalem. You know, I don't know, we don't know exactly what happened other than this. We know that God put it in his heart to spare Judah and spare Jerusalem. That was the only place he spared in all his expeditions uh, uh, throughout the world, the known world at that time. So, anyway, got an interesting take on that. All right, now, why did God protect Israel? First of all, why? Because they're his people. And, and, uh, but more importantly, and this is why this passage appears where it appears, because we're going to look at the very next verse, and we're going to see why God protected his people. Because you look at the last part of the verse, he says, For I have seen with my eyes. I've seen the future with my eyes. And I know that Jerusalem is going to be my eternal habitation I know that Jerusalem is going to be where I come and declare myself at my first coming to be the king of kings and lord of lords and so so uh, that's why Alexander didn't destroy Jerusalem and that's why he didn't destroy Judah and so that brings us to this prophecy this amazing prophecy that Uh, We get about the first coming of the Lord uh, on that day we know as Palm Sunday. Listen to what he says, verse number 9. You've seen this before. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's just... I mean, we see that quoted in uh, in the Gospels. We see that very passage from Zechariah quoted, but the uh, fulfillment happened exactly as Zechariah prophesied it would, uh, some 400 years before it happened. Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he presents himself as king, and the people received him to some degree as king, but it was a shallow reception. They didn't receive him as king in their hearts and and Jesus has to be king of our hearts before he can be king of our nation. He's king of a nation of people who have him in their hearts where he is king of their hearts. I like what J. Vernon McGee used to say. He says, the church calls this event the triumphal entry but I call it the triumphal exit because it's really what it is. Jesus was about to exit this world Because that same crew who was shouting, Hosanna in the highest, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and were laying out the palm branches, is the same crowd that a few days later shouted, crucify him, crucify him. And so in essence what they did, they rejected him as their king. And so this first coming that we see here in chapter 9 is that Jesus is rejected, as the king of israel he's rejected as the king of this world but what this shows you is that all of these events that happened when jesus came the first time and all the events that are going to happen when he comes the second time were foreordained by god before the foundation of the world that's the only way that zechariah would be able to write about this coming of Jesus Christ. They're not by chance. Uh, And listen to to this description here he gives of Jesus in in this passage. He He says, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just, and he has a big army, and he's going to defeat Rome, and he's going to... He's going to conquer the world and he's going to sit on the throne of the world he doesn't say that right there does he behold he is coming to you he is just and what does he have with him he doesn't have an army with him he has salvation with him and so uh, i mean he, he is the just judge he's the judge of righteousness he's the one who demands absolute holiness and we aren't holy why Paul says in Romans chapter 3, he says, there is none righteous, no, not one. He's quoting from the Psalms, there is none righteous, no, not one. So thank God. Thank God. If God demands total holiness, perfect holiness, in order for us to have eternal life, thank goodness Jesus didn't come like Alexander came into Jerusalem. Thank goodness he didn't come with an army just so he could lift himself up as king. Thank goodness that he came as, the, as just as, because he demands justice, he demands righteousness, but he also came as, as, uh, as, as our salvation, and that's why they shouted, "Hosanna, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord." Because Hosanna means salvation now. And I don't think they understood what they were shouting. You remember when, when uh, the Pharisees rebuked Jesus and and. Uh, they said, what are you doing? Why are you accepting all of this praise? Jesus said, if, if they didn't praise me, he said, tell these people to shut up. He said, well, if they didn't praise me, the rocks would cry out. Well, basically what was happening, the rocks were crying out. Those dead people were crying out. They were saying something they didn't even understand in their heart because, just, like I say, just a few days later, they were crying out, crucify him, crucify him. But here they're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of of the Lord, save us now. And that's exactly what he was doing. He'd come there to save them, and he had come there to save us. Now, when you go to verse number 10, we're going we're to jump, there's a gap there between verse number 9 and verse number 10. And it's the same gap that actually it's going to gap all the way until, uh, until Jesus comes the second time. So you've got him coming in the first time, and then you'll have him coming in the second time, coming to this earth the second time. And all of this lines up perfectly with the prophecy that Daniel gave us in chapter 9, I believe, of Daniel, about the 70 weeks. There's 69 weeks from the point that Cyrus has made, uh, makes the decree for the Jews to return to Jerusalem, which is the time that we're looking at right now when this prophecy was written. And those 69 weeks, after the 69 weeks, uh, actually beyond that, after those 69 weeks, Jesus comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And then you have that seventh week. And that seventh week has yet to be fulfilled. That seventh week is filled, fulfilled in the Great Tribulation. Well, Zechariah has that same gap here, too, between verses number 9 and 10. And uh, so we pick up later on, well into the future, way past Palm Sunday to verse number 10. And listen to what he says. He said, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from river to the, from the river to the ends of the earth. And so what he's speaking of here now is going all the way into the millennium. After Jesus' return to this earth, he says, I will cut off the chariots from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall, bow shall be cut off. And there will finally be peace to all the nations. Peace on earth, goodwill towards man. It will finally be here. And his dominion will cover this whole earth. It will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So we see his first coming, then there's a gap, and then we get his second coming where he comes back to Jerusalem and he rules over the entire earth. And I hear people all the time say, let's pray for the peace of Jerusalem. uh, As if somehow through our prayers, uh, there might be peace in Jerusalem this year. That doesn't, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. When we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, what we're praying for, we're praying for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Really what we're praying, we're praying Maranatha. When I pray for the peace of Jerusalem, I know there's not going to, there might be periods of peace. But the peace that we're to pray for is that peace when Jesus Christ rules on this earth from Jerusalem. And that will be a lasting peace. That's why we pray, Maranatha, O Lord, come. We're praying for the second coming of the Lord. Come quickly, Lord. Then in verse number 11, he says, As for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Man, that's a, that's a rich verse right there, right? Uh, As for you also, everybody, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners fee f- free from the waterless pit. Now, what is the waterless pit? He's talking about Hades. He's talking about the grave. He's talking about the place below the earth, the abyss. He's talking about that place where sinners go when they die, at least before the cross, that's where they went before they die. And that's an interesting take on this. Now we talked about we talked about Hades Sunday and we talked about it being a place of where God is totally silent. We've talked about Hades before and it's a place of total darkness. We saw Hades in that picture of the rich man and Lazarus and there was that man and he said, "Please wet my tongue with a a drop of water." See, that the waterless pit so there's no water there there's no light there it's hot there it, it, probably just about like lafayette they'd be hot enough in the summer but it's it's hot there and there's no water there and and i think there's there's something spiritual going on there it's more than just there's not physical water there's a thirst that's never quenched because god's not there god is absent so what a horrifying place hades must be and that place we're, we're we're going to see when we, we get in our passage uh, Sunday, that's a place that exists below the earth. Tartarus is what the Greeks referred to it as. But it's, it's an actual place somewhere below the earth. And uh, uh, so, but there's, a, there's an escape. And what's the escape? The blood of the covenant. The blood of Jesus Christ. I was listening to somebody talk today about a particular preacher who who uh has written four or five books and in, in, in all five books there's not one mention of the blood. Well he maybe the most top bookseller, Christian bookseller in the country today. I'm not gonna name his name. And and it doesn't name the blood and doesn't name the cross one time in his top four best selling books. New York, uh bestsellers list books not one time look it's all about the blood without the blood you will go to the waterless pit you'll go to that place of darkness you'll go to that place where it is totally silent where God is silent where God's not there and you will thirst forever that thirst will never be quenched because we're all created with a thirst for God a hunger for righteousness a hunger for truth a hunger for goodness a hunger for love all those things that we hunger for in life God's created us for those things. And they'll never be satisfied in that waterless pit. But by the blood of the covenant, we're set free from that waterless pit. Amen? And then he says, return to your, the stronghold. Now, he's going to come back here in verse number 12, and he's going to address the people directly, the Jews that are there now. He's going to, he says, be encouraged. I mean, you can be set free from all of your desires, from all of your thirst, from all of your hunger. He says, return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. You do it through hope and faith. Uh, Even today, I declare, I will restore double to you. In other words, even this day that that you guys are living in, he tells these Jews who are are listening to this prophecy, he says, I will restore double to you. I'm going to bless you and uh, uh, return to the land. Uh, return to within the walls of Jerusalem and you'll receive a double blessing and the nation will become strong again. All right, now, these next one, two, three, four verses here, it's really hard to be dogmatic exactly uh, what they're saying, but it looks like this is a prophecy related to uh, the Abomination of Desolations, and the Maccabean Revolt, which would be precede the sec- first coming of Jesus Christ, and come directly after, a, a, a not too long after Alexander's uh, march through Palestine, and and one of these generals that that uh, uh, a descendant of one of these generals who. The, the Solution Empire and the Ptolemy Empire, the land was divided among these generals. And one of these generals, known as Antiochus Epiphanes, came into the temple and he demanded that the priests sacrifice pigs on the altar. And some of the priests did were doing that. And this guy, Matthias, this priest Matthias, came in and he slaughtered, the soldiers and he slaughtered the the uh priests who were making these sacrifices and him and his son Judah Maccabees and his their their brothers joined him in a revolt and they revolted against antiochus Epiphanes and uh they ultimately ended the uh Greeks reign in Palestine, in that area. And this became what's known as a Hasmonean Empire. Uh, you there's there's some really good books on the intertestamental period and it's a good read. It's, like I said, uh, Sunday God wasn't silent during this time. There were a lot of things happening, and all of these things that were happening were were uh, preliminary to the first coming of Jesus Christ. They set up the stage for the first coming of Jesus Christ, and so did this revolt right here because it set up the Hasmonean Empire. But but listen to what he says. We'll we'll read it and and You've got a background on it now, so maybe it'll make a little sense to you. He says, For I have bent Judah, my bow, fitted a bow with Ephraim, and raised up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. So this is this revolt against Greece. And made you like the sword of mighty man. Now here's this nation that had been stripped of all its weaponry. Uh, It's a nation that was you know, at the mercy of the Persians and at the mercy of the Greeks, when the Greeks defeated the Persians. And now God is going to make them a mighty army again. They had, Remember, they had been a mighty army under David and some of the other kings, but now they're going to be a mighty army again. And they're going to be able to, and they're, they're led by the, the Judas Maccabee and his brothers, and, and they defeat the Greeks. Because then the Lord will be seen over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will blow the trumpet and, and go with the whirlwinds from the south, and the Lord of hosts will defend them. They shall devour and subdued with sling stones. They shall drink and roar as if with wine. They will they will be filled with, with blood like basins. They shall be filled with blood like basins, like the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save them in that day, and the flock of his people, for they shall be like the jewels of a crown, lifted like a banner over his land. So in the immediate sense, I think this prophecy uh, is a prophecy about the Maccabean revolt. And then uh, in a second fulfillment, you could say that this is also uh, after the Antichrist uh, commits his abomination of desolations and he comes in the temple declares himself to be God. Then there's this war that erupts again and God protects Israel. And there's a lot more that goes with that story. And he... Uh, protects them and hides them from the Antichrist. All right. Then he finishes up in verse number seventeen. He says, "For how great is its goodness, and how great its beauty?" And he's, he now he's he's jumping again all the way to the second coming of Jesus Christ. For how great is its goodness? We're talking about this millennial kingdom, and how great is its beauty about the Jerusalem and Judah in the millennial kingdom? Grain shall be shall make the young man thrive and new wine the young women. So this day of prosperity is coming. This is the hope that he was offering to these people of Israel. There's this great day of prosperity for you now. There's a double blessing for you now, but there's an even greater day of prosperity coming when Jesus Christ returns to this earth. And it's just as sure as anything else that's ever happened. Just as Jesus came in on Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago, he's going to return a second time here real shortly. And just as certain as he's going to return, because that's foreordained by God, and just as certain he was going to come that first time because that was foreordained by God, your destiny is foreordained by God. And it's just as certain, just as certain as Jesus was going to walk in on Palm Sunday into Jerusalem. He was going to come riding in, rather, on a donkey. Uh, and he was going to present himself as king. And just as sure as he's going to come the second time, his feet are going to land on Mount Zion. And he's going to present himself on, as king. He was foreordained before the foundation of the world to do all of that. And you and I were foreordained before the foundation of the world to be part of that kingdom. That's what's exciting. He chose us in him, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, before the foundation of the world. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be children of God and to be part of this kingdom. And so, hey, God knew God knew when he made this prophecy, when he knew about In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, he knew that Christ was going to come in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He knew that before the foundation of the world. And he knew you would be part of that kingdom before the foundation of the world. That's the hope we have in Christ. But you still have to choose Christ. You don't choose Christ and you weren't chosen. Only those who choose Christ were chosen. But if you are chosen, if you choose Christ, you know that you were chosen. All right, let's go to the Lord in Prayer. Father, we just thank you for your Word. We thank you for th- this great hope that we have of your second coming. And Lord, we know it's sure because, uh, Lord, you've you've foreordained all of these things and, and back in eternity past. and And we can be sure that some point in the future that you're going to return to this earth. You're going to set up your kingdom in Jerusalem. And Lord, so we do pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray, Lord, that that uh, you'll soon come and uh, Lord, that you'll, uh, that we, we, we long for that time and we, we look forward to that time when we're part of your kingdom, your kingdom on this earth. Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We thank you for that hope. We thank you in Christ. Amen.